Today's scripture reading comes from the end of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. If you have a Bible with us, we'd love for you to follow along. If you don't have one, we'd love to give one to you. You can find some in the vestibules as you exit, and you can just grab one if you'd like. We'll begin our reading with Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now skipping down to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Well, good morning, uh, Christ community. Uh, good to see you all. Happy Palm Sunday. Uh, it is a joy to be with you as we continue on uh, in the book of Genesis and our sermon series on Genesis, uh, also known as Everyone Will Find Something to Object To series. Um, uh, seriously, though, I mean, like, truly, like, you cannot open the first three pages of the book of the Bible and not come across something that either is completely implausible or completely controversial in our modern way of thinking. And, and if you haven't had that moment yet of kind of saying, like, ah, I'm not sure about that, uh, it's, it's coming, okay? In fact, it might happen this morning uh, because full disclosure, uh, this morning as we turn to Genesis 2, uh, we will be talking about sex and sexuality. Uh, and so this is an important subject for us to engage in. Uh, this is actually the, the second part sermon uh, entitled Male and Female, He Created Them. Last week, Nathan shared with us what it means that God has made us in his image as both male and female, that we have been created as gendered embodied beings, and that has many implications for life. And this morning, we turn our attention to the subjects of sex and sexuality. And we, we did send out an email a couple weeks ago to families just to give them a heads up uh, so that for young kiddos, if you want to keep them in service or not, that's up to you. My kids are in service, so just so you know. But uh, if you're a, a visitor or a guest and this is your first Sunday, we're glad you're here, uh, even if now you may not be. Uh, but we are, it's truly an honor to jump in uh, to this conversation. This is a difficult subject. Um, and we don't want to shy away from difficult subjects, especially when we come across them in Scripture. We don't want to pick and choose the parts of, of the Bible that we like teaching or comfortable teaching. When that becomes our, our practice, we're actually not worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. We're choosing what is true, right, and good. And so it's important to engage in difficult subjects when we come across them in Scripture, but especially when these subjects are things that are just filled with confusion and, and distortion in our culture. And sex is no exception to that uh, list of things. And so regardless... 
Regardless of what your view is of the sexual ethic, of, of your view and understanding of how the Bible teaches sex and sexuality, all of us, we have to admit that our culture doesn't have a really healthy, good grasp on these subjects. It's steeped in confusion, there's distortion, there's coercion, there's shame of all kinds when it comes to the subject of sex and sexuality. And so we want to lean into the subject to understand it more personally, but because this truly is not a theoretical issue. It's very personal, and, and I wanna speak in such a way that, that addresses the personal reality of sex, because it's not just something we should have an understanding of. This is not, and just to be clear, this is not like a tutorial message, okay, just to be clear, but we're understanding what the Bible's teaching is of sex and sexuality, and how God has designed it for our good and for his glory. But, but even some of us might be thinking, this is neither the time nor the place to talk about it, this is, feels uncomfortable and awkward, but here's the reality. If I didn't talk about sex, I would be a bad pastor, and, and we as Christ community would be an unwise and unhelpful church to a culture that is desperate for answers and longing for an understanding of how we make sense of this very powerful and volatile subject known as sex, because it is absolutely a complex, powerful, and important subject. And that's because sex, there is more to sex than sex. When we think about what sex is, fundamentally we have to see that there is more to sex than sex. And this is the idea I want us to look at this morning. And so I want to pray, before we get to our text, I want to pray, and before you hear me say the word sex 743 times, um, I, I would like to pray for our time. So let's, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Father in heaven, I come to you as a sexually broken man. And Lord, we come to you together as sexually broken people in need of clear answers and guidance, in need of your wisdom to know how you've created us into the designed way that is for our good and your glory. Lord, would you show us what it means to live within your design and may we be willing through the power of your spirit to submit to your good design. And in so doing, Lord, may we reflect the image of your son, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray, amen. So, there is more to sex than sex. And, and this is not just a, a, a biological statement, this is very much a theological statement. And, and so what I wanna do, I wanna unpack this idea that there is more to sex than sex by looking first at this idea that sex is God's idea. You, you may find this to be kind of interesting and surprising that the Bible opens up in its teaching on sex, not with a list of countless prohibitions and words of condemnation, but rather with a clear declaration of the goodness, the inherent goodness of sex. And so when we turn to Genesis 2, if you have your Bibles open, turn to Genesis 2, and we see the first description of sex in God's good world, we see the affirmation of it in verses 23 through 24. So read along, or not read along with me, but follow along with me in verse 23. This is as, as God is bringing Eve to Adam, it says, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, now this is God kind of declaring what the goodness of this union is. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now, in the first recorded blind date in, the human, in human history, you have God bring, coming to Adam and saying, like, bro, I've got somebody you've got to meet, okay? And so he brings Adam to Eve, and, and, and Adam, in a bold move on his first date, starts reading poetry to this girl, so, which is very, it's a bold move, brother, but, but really, this is not a blind date, that's tongue-in-cheek. This is really the first marital union between a man and a woman. And we see there are two very operative phrases that, that Moses uses in describing this union between one man and one woman. And the first phrase is one flesh. And this phrase has a lot of deep, rich meaning. Uh, we tend to look at that as, as purely just a physical description of what is taking place in sex. Well, that's part of it. There is so much more going on in this word. It has a wider, more robust understanding. It's communicating this holistic bond between a woman and a man who've committed themselves to each other. A, a bond that, that is not just physical, but is indeed emotional and spiritual, mental, and yes, sexual. In her phenomenal book, which I'd highly recommend, uh, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, it's pretty heady, but if you're interested in kind of learning more of this uh, kind of on an intellectual level, I'd highly recommend it. But Piercy says this, she says, the reference to physical unity, she's referring to this passage in Genesis 2, the reference to physical unity was intended to express a joyous unity on all other levels as well, including mind, emotion, and spirit. Scripture offers a stunningly high view of physical union as a union of whole persons across all dimensions. So in this way, what Piercy is saying is that sex is not simply good because of the pleasure it produces, although it's nothing less than that. It is also good because of the holistic bond that it builds between a woman and a man who are pledged together in a covenant relationship. In this way, sex is meant to communicate both the goodness of God because it's his idea, but also it's couched within a relationship that we see in the second operative phrase, hold fast. And so a man and woman are to be one flesh, and so this is communicating the holistic bond, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, but they are also to hold fast to one another. And we see that in verse 25, and that word hold fast, it's used throughout the scriptures to describe both the bond between a husband and a wife in covenant marriage together, but it's also the same word in Hebrew to describe God's covenant love with his people that it's not just a contract, but it's about a commitment to one another rooted in promise, in love, and sacrifice. And so the goodness of sex, I mean, so when we understand both these realities, that the husband and wife are to be one flesh, this holistic bond, and that they are to hold fast to one another, committed to one another, we see that, that far from Christians being prudish and, and puritanical in their view of sex, Christians actually have a very high view of sex. And this is affirmed throughout the scripture storyline. Moses is building a framework here in Genesis 2. Jesus affirms it and adds to it in Matthew 19, where he actually refers back to Genesis 2. And the apostle Paul builds upon it in 1 Corinthians 6. And so, so when we look at the whole storyline of the Bible, sex is not something that Christians are adverse to and opposed to. You tend, you, the, the common narrative or the caricature of Christians is like, sex is this beautiful, wonderful thing, uh, and, and it, or sex is kind of like vile, disgusting, you better wait until you fall in love to do it. I'm like, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. But rather than Christians being anti-sex, Christians are actually pro-covenantal sex. And what that means is that the Christian view of sex isn't simply a man and a woman can have sex in marriage, they're allowed to, you're permitted to. 
but rather it is that, no, they ought to enjoy sex together. That this is a good thing within God's good design boundaries. To be enjoyed not as a personal pleasure to be demanded, to be clear, but as a, mutual, a mutually enjoyable gift to be shared. Sex is not, let me say that again, sex is not a personal pleasure to be demanded. But as we see how God has set us up, it is to be a mutually enjoyable gift to be shared. And so in this way, far from having a low view of sex, Christians actually have a very high view of sex. Because fundamentally, we know that truth that there is more to sex than sex. It is not purely physical. It is not purely material. It is not just something that two consenting adults are doing together. There's more going on here than simply sex. Now, while sex is God's idea, we see that the scriptures open up with this affirmation of the goodness of sex. Sex is not God's best idea. And let let me explain what I mean. Sex is God's idea, but it's not his best idea. And what I mean by that is that as good as sex is, there is an even greater intimacy good, there's a greater good regarding our intimacy. And I'll explain what I mean. Look with me at verse 18 in chapter 2. So this is before God has created Eve and brought her to Adam. We read these words in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So before human sin has entered the world, we see that there is something not good in God's good world. Namely, the isolation of of humanity, of of a man, a person alone and by themselves. God is declaring something here, what theologians refer to as the divine pause. God has said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and then it's not good that man should be alone. God wants us to lean in and understand there's something missing here. And it is that Adam needs a relationship. And it's not just because men do stupid things when women aren't around, which is totally true. Uh, I I actually believe that uh, that God put Eve in the garden as a way to kind of protect Adam from maybe allowing his curiosity to get the best of him. You kind of imagine Adam maybe doing something like this in the garden. I think of a picture of this maybe. Or there it is. Yeah, you could probably imagine Adam doing something like this. He's like, Eve, you better get down there before Adam's curiosity kind of gets the best of it. Or you can imagine maybe Eve needs to get there to help Adam because maybe his eating habits would produce some problems. Like he'd probably do something really foolish in creation. Uh, I think we have a picture of that as well. There it is. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably going to do something stupid. Uh, or maybe Adam's DIY projects would probably actually produce more injury uh, than, than help. Uh, I had to bring some levity to the sermon about sex, okay? But, but truly, it's not just because men do stupid things when women aren't around. That's true. Amen? There it is. But even more than that, what God is declaring in saying it is not good that Adam, that man should be alone, what God is declaring is that it is very good for humans to have relationships. In saying that it is not good for humans to be alone, God is actually saying it is very good for humans to be in relationships, And if you notice in the context here, God is not really speaking about sexual intimacy. That doesn't come until later on. The context of verse 18 is actually rooted in Adam's need for a companion, a partner in his work of stewarding creation that God has given him. If you back up in verse 15, we read these words. It's kind of the job description of Adam. Verse 15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And then as you, as you continue on after verse 18, you see that Adam is put in the garden to, to name the animals. He's at work in naming the animals. And so it's, the context here is actually not Adam's longing for sexual intimacy. It is his longing for relational intimacy. Or, or to put it another way, the primacy of intimacy is not sexuality. It is friendship. The primacy of intimacy is not sexuality. It is friendship. Which may sound ridiculous. I mean, I'm sure some of you are thinking, like, really, read like you're saying friendship is more important than sex. And, and I can understand why we might have that kind of pushback and response. But l- let me suggest something here. I think that p- part of the reason why we find ourselves b- both guilty of and, and witnessing a very impoverished view of sex in our world, I think a large part of it is because we have an impoverished view of friendship. We have an impoverished view of sex largely because we have an impoverished view of friendship. The Bible does not teach that you were created to find a spouse. The Bible does not teach that singleness is a second-class status. And the Bible does not teach that you need sex to have a meaningful life. But the Bible does teach that all of us need and long for meaningful friendship. In, in, in this phenomenal book that I would also commend to you, uh, made, for, made, for relation, made for Friendships, Drew Hunter makes this phenomenal, astute observation of what's going on here in Genesis 2. He says this, every soul reverberates with the echoes of this Edenic ache for friendship. It's an ancient and primal longing. We are inescapably communal. As the creation week moves along, the whole creation is not pronounced very good until God addresses the one thing that is not good, Adam's isolation. And this shows us that a world without friendship is not complete. It's not yet very good. Now, some of us may laugh at this idea, like this is completely implausible. Like if you're trying to attempt to convince uh, a watching world that the biblical ethic of sexuality is compelling and convincing, you've lost it by placing friendship above sex. And, and we may laugh at that, and we may think that's silly and ridiculous, but here's what I, I believe all of us know this to be true. Because j- just think about this. People can live meaningful lives without the intimacy of sex. They can, and they do. But we cannot, none of us, can live meaningful lives without the intimacy of friendship. People can live meaningful lives without the intimacy of sex. We cannot live meaningful lives without the intimacy of friendship. And this is precisely what God is trying to declare. Yes, sexuality and sex is good as God has designed it, but first and foremost, we were created for relationships and friendships to find meaning in intimacy. The primacy of intimacy is not sexuality, it is friendship. Now, I want, I want to pause for a second. I want, I want to speak to our single brothers and sisters for a minute. And I want our married brothers and sisters to listen in. The fact that you are single does not mean there is something wrong with you. And I, I hope you believe that and know that. Contrary to what maybe our culture says and contrary to maybe what the church has explicitly or implicitly said. There is nothing wrong with being single. And if the church, or if myself included, if we have been complicit in in, in pushing a narrative that affirms that, then I'm sorry. What we have to understand 
is that part of our, part of our obsession with sex, again, comes from the fact that we have an impoverished understanding and a reductionistic view of friendship and relationships. I think the implicit narrative that, that the church finds herself believing is, is kind of this idolatrous belief and this kind of imbalanced focus on marriage, family, and sex. All three are good things, but there's a sense in which the church elevates them to this status that says, if you aren't experiencing these three things, then, then you're missing out on something and you're not fully living into the life that God has called you for and there's something probably wrong with you. If that is our mindset, not only are we failing to love our single brothers and sisters, but we are guilty of idolizing a gift that God has given us for our good and putting it at a level that it was never intended to be. I think we struggle to have a healthy and functional category in the church for, for intimate celibate friendships. We, we don't even know what that even looks like or means. And so we kind of default to an oversimplified understanding of singleness and how we approach single people. In addition to that, the church also seems to have no idea what to do with faithful followers of Jesus who struggle with same-sex attraction, who are no less committed to the, to the biblical ethic of sexuality, who believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, and who want to follow Jesus and have chosen faithfulness to him over sexual pleasure. We don't know what to do with these brothers and sisters. We tend to lump everybody kind of into the same broad category, and we have no idea how to be a church for people who have said, I struggle and I identify as being same-sex attracted, but I know it's outside of God's design. I want to follow Jesus. Where can I find a community to struggle through this with who can love me and support me? We don't know how to do that well. In fact, the church has probably gone to the other extreme of, of kind of chastising and ostracizing these brothers and sisters who we can desperately, who we desperately need to learn from. Preston Sprinkle, in his book, People to be Loved, which again, another book I'd recommend, you've done a lot of homework this week, but in his book, People to be Loved, Sprinkle makes this observation about the church and the LGBTQ community, and he says this, it's not too much truth, but too little love that's driving gay and straight people away from the bride of Christ. The fact is, most LGBTQ people I know didn't leave the church because their behavior wasn't affirmed. It was because their humanity wasn't affirmed. And shame on us if, that is, if, if we are guilty of that. If we have found ourselves kind of being so focused on, on kind of this line in the sand conversation that we have failed to see and understand that these are people to be loved and frankly, that we as a church have great things to learn from our single brothers and sisters and our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters who, again, are committed to the biblical ethic of sexuality. They have something to tell us and to teach us to say that there is something greater, nay, someone better and greater that we can give our lives to more satisfying than the simply hollow and romantic fulfillments that our culture tells us and peddles to us. We have a great deal to learn and a great amount of grace to extend when it comes to loving our single brothers and sisters and those who would identify as same-sex attracted. Because again, there is more to sex than just sex. But when, here's the thing, when we fail to see that sex is God's good idea, and when we fail to live within his good design that is for our good, 
then it's not a surprise that we find that sex is also disintegrated. Sex is God's idea, but it's not his best idea. But we also see that when we step outside of his boundaries, sex is disintegrated. And I, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because we're still, we're still in Genesis 2. Like the, the fall of humanity hasn't even happened yet in our, in our narrative of Genesis. But, but I think we need to say at least something in terms of the ways in which sex is disintegrated, uh, distorted in our world. And I'll ju- I just want to highlight two things. We find sex disintegrated when it is p- pursued for the wrong purpose and with the wrong person. The wrong purpose and the wrong person. First, the wrong purpose. Christians reject a dualistic way of, of looking at life, looking at humanity, looking at existence. We reject this idea that there's the physical realm and then there's the spiritual realm and they're, and they're completely isolated and they don't inter, inter, interweave and overlap. Christians reject this idea because we believe, as, as Nathan showed us last week, we were created that God infused his spirit into us and we are physical beings and that our physical life impacts our spiritual life and vice versa. And so we reject this dualistic way of thinking that our, our physical, what we do with our body has no impact on our spirit. That's totally false. But when we reject this union of body and soul on all levels, but especially with sex, we find ourselves pursuing sex in a way that actually undermines and robs us of the very joy we're trying to pursue. As we, as we try to live into this world of like, what I do with my body is one thing, what I do with my, my spiritual life is another, that falls apart. And our culture is starting to wake up to this inconsistency. Again, Nancy Piercy says this so well. She says, people are trying to live out a worldview that does not fit who we really are. Because humans are created in God's image, the secular view, which is the view that like what I do with my body doesn't have any impact on my my soul, my spirit, my mental health or whatever. The secular view will never quite match their actual experience. As a result, in practice, non-Christians will always run into some point of contradiction between their secular worldview and their real-life experience. We're finding that this kind of division of body and soul cannot function. It's only reserved for things like dissertation philosophy papers. But when we understand that what we do with our body impacts other aspects of our being, we realize that this worldview cannot hold together. And so whether you're trying to pursue sexual intimacy outside of God's uh, design, outside of the covenant relationship, or whether you're pursuing it within the covenant relationship, but but in impersonal ways, when when we see sex as just a purely material, physical thing, when we pursue sex even within the covenant of marriage, when we pursue it in impersonal ways like through pornography, uh, through self-centered sex, through abusive sex, through uh, habitual masturbation, like whatever it is, these impersonal forms of sexual gratification that are purely physical actually diminish our ability to enjoy sex and to be intimate, not just sexually, but relationally. We find it produces the same general problem that when sex is just sex, we find that we may be physically gratified, but not intimately satisfied. Let me illustrate it this way. If, if I were to ask you, is, is fire good? Well, that, that depends on, on like where and how it's being used. Like a fire in the fireplace is good. Fire in a fire not place is bad, you know? Like, for example, like I've got a you know, fire in a candle. Here we go. Look at that. That's good. Fire in a candle is good. Fire on a couch, 
It's not so good, not so good. I know from experience. That's another story for another day. But truly, when we think about fire, the question of is it good or not is predicated on how it's being used and what purpose and in what context. In the same way, sex must be seen in that same lens. To ask is sex good, well yes, but, but in what context, what's the purpose, in, 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 with what relationship is it being enjoyed in? When we engage in sex with this purpose, this mindset that what I do with my body is one thing and it's separate from the rest of my being, we find, to use the, the, a turn of phrase from Top Gun, we find that our bodies are writing checks that our souls can't cash. When we separate our body from our soul, in, especially in sexual engagement, we are finding that our bodies are writing checks our souls can't cash. And that's because deep down we know, we know that there's more to sex than sex. So sex is disintegrated when, it, when, it's, when it's pursued for the wrong purpose, but secondly, it's disintegrated with the wrong person. And what I mean by this is that, that sex is not just, it, it's disintegrated when it's pursued outside of the context of God's design boundaries, within his design of a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. And this isn't some arbitrary, antiquated rule that was established by God to kind of limit our joy, but rather, on the contrary, God's design boundaries are meant to preserve and protect our joy when it comes to sexual intimacy. The reason why we shouldn't pursue sex with the wrong person isn't just because God says it's a bad idea, although that's true, but because deep down, if we're honest, we know it's a bad idea. And, and this is actually what the Apostle Paul gets at. Paul pens these words, lovingly so, but boldly so boldly so, to the, uh, to the Corinthians who were embroiled in various sexual perversions of all kinds. And he says these words in verse 18, chapter 6. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Did you catch that? When we are guilty of sexual immorality, which is any sexual uh, engagement outside of God's design boundaries, it's not simply we have done something that has offended God, that is absolutely true, but in so doing, we have actually sinned against ourselves, that we are short-circuiting our own pursuit of joy and satisfaction when we live outside of God's good design boundaries. Whether it is our pursuit of sex, and maybe it's with the right person but the wrong time, like you're, you're dating, you're engaged, you're not married, that's still outside of God's design. Or whether you're, you're, um, it's produced through the self-inflicted wounds of pursuing sex for your own sexual, uh, selfish pleasure, this undermines our joy, and we know it. Andy Stanley drives this point home really well in his book, The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating. And he says this, he says, when we rip sex out of its divinely designed relational context, we hurt ourselves. Sexual sin is like no other sin because your sexuality bridges body and soul. When you sin sexually, you literally sin against your true self. Sexual sin eventually equates to self-inflicted pain, which is why sex is for married people. Not because God is against sex, but because God is for you. When we pursue sexual intimacy with the wrong person outside of God's good design boundaries, whether it's with someone we're not married to, whether it's with someone of the same sex as us, whether it is through the objectifying and dehumanizing poison of pornography or through sexual abuse, we find that we are undermining our own pursuit of joy. 
Now, I, I know that much more could be said on, on here and, and much more needs to be said, but we can't do everything in one sermon. Believe me, I've tried. Uh, but let me quickly just say three things uh, for you to, if you want to cons- uh, further conversation and resources. One, I would highly recommend that you read our church's position paper on God's design for human sexuality. You can find it on our website if you go to the resources tab. I encourage you to read that if you have questions about kind of where we stand theologically on some of these matters. The second thing I would recommend, if you have questions particularly about um, same-sex attraction and homosexuality, I would commend to you the book I mentioned, People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Phenomenal resource I'd highly recommend to you. It gives a good biblical understanding of the subject, but also provides a very loving pastoral tone in how we engage in conversation with real people made in God's image. And then thirdly, I would say talk, talk to someone. If, if there's something going on in your life, I mean, because here's the thing, we, we all struggle with sexual sin in various ways. If you're struggling with sexual purity, if you're, if you're engaging in an affair with someone who isn't your spouse, uh, if you find yourself uh, wrestling with same-sex attraction or suffering from sexual abuse, or if you feel entrapped and enslaved uh, by the addiction of pornography, would you please reach to someone, find someone on staff to talk to? We want to care for you. We want to know you. We want to journey with you as we all collectively seek to live out God's design for sexuality for our good and for his glory. So we encourage you to find someone that you can reach out to because here's the reality. We are all, everyone in this room, we are all sexually broken people. And, And while we may have these ways of kind of putting one sexual sin above another, all of us are broken sexually. And all of us long for this kind of intimacy that Adam and Eve had, an intimacy that was, there was vulnerability and yet void of shame, which is what, what uh, we see in Genesis 2 at verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is what we want, not just for our sexual intimacy, but for relational intimacy. We want to be able to be known and to know others. We want to be able to have the intimacy of relationships that is void of shame, we all want to true, experience true intimacy, both sexual and relational, without shame. And while that seems impossible at times, given the various ways in which we deviate from God's design for sex and sexuality, the good news is this, is that while sex is disintegrated, the good news is that sex will not define us. No matter how good or how bad it may be and how we've experienced it, while sex is disintegrated because of sin, sex ultimately will not define us. I know that that perhaps that sexual sin, it does some of its worst work, not in the flames of sexual sin, but in the toxins of the smoke of the shame that follows. I know that to be true. I know that from my own story in life, and I'm sure that many of us can resonate with that. And again, it's because all of us know that there's more to sex than sex. It is not just physical. But do you know what's an even greater truth than there is more to sex than sex? The more powerful truth is that there is more to our identity and to our lives than sexual sin and shame. Amen? The effects and consequences of our sin absolutely are far-reaching and long-lasting. And the sexual wounds that are either self-inflicted or have been brought upon us by the abuse of others, they stick with us. And those scars can leave, those scars can make us feel as though this is now a part of who I am. Just like a real physical scar on your body, it's not leaving. We feel that about our sexual sin in many ways. 
that this is who I am. This is what defines me. I can't change what has happened to me or what I have done. There's no hope for me. But while the wounds of our sexual sin cut deep, the good news, friends, is that the, the gospel, the grace of God in Jesus Christ cuts deeper still. His ability to redeem your brokenness is so great that we cannot even imagine it. You see, because Jesus entered into our world to become a body, become a human, so that he might take our sin, that he might become our sexual sin, that, it, that if you are having an affair, Jesus became an adulteress for you, that if you find yourself addicted to pornography, Jesus became a porn addict for you. That's what that means, that he became our sin. Why? So that he could nail it to the cross that would never define us or plague us again ultimately. Jesus entered our world to take upon our sin, to grant us freedom, forgiveness, and wholeness so that we would see and believe the words that the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 6. Jesus came to become our sin so that we would hear these words, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. The hope we have over sexual sin over all sin, is that while we may think we are defined by and marked by our sin, Jesus boldly and tenderly declares to us, you are defined by my love for you. We do not belong to our sexual past or to our sexual present. We belong decidedly to Jesus. And friends, yes, while there is absolutely more to sex than sex, Thanks be to God that there is more to our identity and to our life than our sin and our shame. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you from all places and stages of life, various spectrums, of places in the spectrum of faith, and Lord, even in terms of the weight and the shame of our sin, we all feel it in various ways, but Lord, Help us to know and see that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Lord Jesus, may we see that, that through your body, through your blood, we have been forgiven and redeemed. Lord, may we see the goodness of how you've created the world, and may we see that in living in, in accordance with your design, it is truly for our good. Lord, may we see and understand our need for the intimacy of friendships. Lord, may we be good friends to one another. May we as a church be a caring family motivated by the love that we have received from our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I do pray that you would bring healing and hope to our brokenness, that you would bring healing and hope to our wounds, bring forgiveness and wholeness in only the ways that you can do. Lord, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory that we pray. Amen.